there's a huge difference between data driven, which honestly is like saying, hey, I make all my decisions based on the past and being analytics led, which is, hey, I'm, I make my decision based on how things are actually operating now in a cause and effect relationship. Hello, and welcome back to Product Market Fit, a podcast for early stage founders and operators who are looking to level up their startup's growth. I'm your host, Moshe Poltrak, and today's guest is Mark Stuse, founder and CEO of Proof Analytics, a platform to help go-to-market teams make better decisions about their business. In this interview, Mark talks about the different roles that data plays in an organization and why most companies get it wrong, as well as his fascinating journey from CMO at Fortune 100s like Honeywell and BMC to startup founder and the pain that went along with that. But first, a quick message from our sponsor. The Product Market Fit podcast is brought to you by Growth.co. That's growthwithoutthe.o.co. Growth offers fractional CMOs paired with best-in-class digital marketing execution to support early-stage startup success. With a focus on seed and Series A companies, Growth has helped a number of SaaS, digital health, and e-commerce startups build their go-to-market function and scale up. To learn more and book a free consultation, go to growth.co. That's G-R-W-T-H dot C-O. And now, here's my conversation with Mark Stoos. Hello, Mark. Welcome to the show. So happy to have you on today. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. So diving right in, can you tell us what is Proof Analytics and who do you serve? Proof Analytics is a significantly automated software platform that delivers totally scalable cause and effect analytics or what data scientists would call causal analytics. And it has a lot of different use cases. Probably the one that we are most known for is assessing go-to-market. The impact that investments in one area have on outcomes in another, and ultimately cascading forward into revenue margin and cash flow impact for the business. So it's not a new idea. The math has been around for ages, right? We just made it extremely accessible and scalable, very, very low latency, where it effectively operates like a GPS, right? I mean, if you will accept for a second that most of life and most of business is really a navigation question, right? Where do I need to go and how do I need to get there? You know, what are the obstacles in my path and what do I do about them, right? And the, a GPS significantly addresses those questions. That is actually exactly what proof is. It's a business GPS. I love that GPS analogy. Of course, a lot of decisions in business are future looking. You're trying to predict, you know, what's the best use of capital? What's the best initiative to be focused on, et cetera. So having something that tells you that based on data is extremely valuable for any company. Talk to me more about the products that you have. Correct me if I'm wrong, your platform is a software as a service, but there is a service component as well. So analytics as a service to your business. And the core offering is media mix modeling, as well as marketing resource management, MRM. Is that right? Yeah, we have two different products. I would say that in general, the way a lot of people think about these two are, is that the MRM, the marketing resource management product, which is the only MRM tool on Salesforce natively, that is kind of the accountability product, 
right? It's like any ERP. It's where all the data and everything goes to live. It's where you do planning and budgeting and compliance and approvals and, you know, all that kind of stuff, which is really necessary, really unsexy, but but really important and gives the business in the case of go to market, a lot of transparency into, you know, how you're spending your money and what you're doing. And then you have what historically has been called marketing mix modeling for like the last 40 years or so it's been called that today it's really go to market mix modeling, right? GTM mix modeling. And that's kind of a mouthful, but I'm not trying to label it. I'm mainly trying to explain it. That's really what it is. And that is optimization. That's an optimization product. That's all it's forward looking. It's it certainly, you know, leverages historical performance into a forecast. But I mean, the past is not prologue. And so while it, it is instructive, it's not determinate, right? The future is probabilistic. There is nothing in this life that is deterministic. And so deterministic means if this, then that every single time, right? That's not the way it is, right? It's essentially all about the relative odds of something happening as a result of these things coming together. I mean, is there, is there really anything of consequence happening today that bears any similarity to 2018, 2019? I would say no, right? The world has really changed far more significantly and continues to change, right? The volatility and the velocity of change, the sheer variety of change agents has just exploded. So those are the two main products that we operate. Fantastic. And I want to peel back some of the layers there. You talked about the fact that past performance is not a guarantee of future performance, as we know. And the throw another idiom out there, the only constant is change. So how do these models predict the future, leveraging past data, and how useful are they when you're trying to make decisions about investments in specific channels or other capital allocation decisions? How do these models come to play? It's something called multivariable regression. That's the mathematical term for it. Most data scientists would say that, you know, all the conversations around AI and machine learning notwithstanding, right? That the, you know, 85% of the world's questions are answered through multivariable regression. It's by far the most common form of analytic. The biggest problem, right, is making it operational in the business. So like one of the biggest issues for data science in general is that it's very slow. So data scientists get a lot of criticism for showing up to a meeting three months after the decision is made with insights that would have been nice to know when the decision was actually being made three months before. And so that kind of problem, the understandability problem, I mean, most normal corporate teams, when they look at a data science output, it's Greek to them. I mean, they stare at it and they go, what the hell am I supposed to do with this? Right? So the way regression works is that it's looking at historical time series data and the relationship between a lot of different variables against a particular outcome that you're interested in. And it's saying, okay, historically, the strength of the relationships has been like this, right? And that is really what we could call the ROI stack on all this stuff, right? 
how well did it perform? How much did it contribute against this outcome? Then you've also got something that's really crucial called time lag. And that is every single one of these investments takes a certain amount of time to pay off, to begin to pay off. It can be weeks, it can be months, it can be a lot of months, right? And that's really important to know. It's not enough to just say, well, we all know that marketing takes time to have an impact on sales. Well, yeah, sure. We can all agree to that. I think most CEOs and CFOs would agree with that. What they want to know is how long am I going to have to wait? So then what happens is all of that historical understanding is then turned into a forecast. This is classic real forecasting as opposed to extrapolation. Extrapolation is just like, well, you know, we have all this time series data and it's all been growing and growing at, you know, roughly 3% per period, right? So we're just going to continue. We're going to project forward at 3%, a constant 3%. And that just totally ignores the fact that the environment, the marketplace could be changing radically during that period of time. And, you know, it, it might be negative 3%. It could be positive 20% based on those changes. And you will have totally missed it with extrapolation. You won't miss it with regression-based forecasting. And then what's really important, and this is where proof really shines, is that every time new data is presented to the model, which is at a cadence that's established by the business itself, it recomputes all the models automatically. So on demand, you always have a current readout. You always know what's going on. And if there is a forecast and your actuals are below forecast or above forecast, it will tell you why based on what's in the model. And you can make choices. You can war game options in response. And this is where the GPS analogy also really is very significant. Now, that is the equivalent of rerouting, right? All of a sudden, you've got a ton of traffic where there was no traffic before. You've got other factors that are slowing you way down. And so your GPS on your phone says, hey, I think you need to go right and go left, go right and go left, and you'll be eight minutes late. But if you stay where you are right now, which was a really good route, but now is not, you'll be an hour late. So what do you want to do? And most people don't even realize it, but it really is the truth, right? When the GPS on your phone gives you three choices of routes, those are all forecasts. It's that mathematically, it's a forecast. So it really, it's an exact compare. It's, it kind of transcends analogy. It's mathematically very similar. It's the only analogy I've ever worked with that never breaks. Under the hood, they work similarly. So to extend that analogy, we've all been in that situation where you're kind of stuck and your GPS is saying, recalculating, recalculating, and you need to know, do I take the exit or I don't take the exit? And you don't want to just stop in the middle of the highway and wait for it to finish recalculating. So as a marketing leader or as a, you know, in the C-suite, any type of leadership position, you need to be making decisions often on partial data, incomplete data. How do you walk the line between accuracy in the prediction, trying to get you know, as precise as possible. And I think that you touched on that earlier when we talked about data science, they, you know, kind of worship at the altar of precision, whereas in marketing or in sales or in, in go-to-market, 
you often need to sacrifice some precision for speed and for picking a direction, right? Because if you stop in the middle of that highway, wait for it to recalculate, you're going to get hit in the trunk by a semi coming at you, right? So you just got to pick one and go. So how do you walk that line? Man, and what a great question. It's actually at the center. So data science culture is a culture or cult of precision. And I don't mean that pejoratively. I think that's exactly really what it is. And it's exemplified by the so-called 95% rule, 95% confidence score, which is something that actually works and is a great standard for the physical sciences. But as soon as you bring human performance or human relations or human actions into the equation, the 95% is a total fiction, right? I mean, really what the maximum that you can expect from models that have a significant amount of human behavior in them is around mid fifties. And that's probably pushing it. So what you will find is, is that data scientists who are trained to really adhere to the 95% will keep what's called overfitting the model, right? To get it up to 95%. But in doing so, they're bringing a huge amount of bias into the model that did not previously exist. So actually, they're breaking their own fundamental values here by doing that. Can you talk a little more about overfitting? Because that's a, a term that I hear often as relates to both with AI training as well as in terms of modeling. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. Basically, it's what you do to ensure a particular outcome, in this case, the 95% confidence score, right? It's not that you're trying to make the analytics say something that they don't say. It's that you're trying to reach a standard of certainty that is not achievable. It's not statistically real, right? And you know, somebody who's even halfway knowledgeable about data science gets kind of frustrated, particularly from the business perspective, right? So among other things, the culture clashes between data science and business, the cult of precision, and if business is a cult, then it's the cult of pragmatism, right? Is a total mismatch. The, the thing here is, is that there's a clearer denominator. You know, everything in life is a numerator-denominator relationship, right? And there's always one stronger party and that's going to be the denominator. In this case, that's business, right? Business is not going to change to make data science happy. Data science is going to have to change and meet the business where it is. And so what that really means here is that business leaders know that they make big decisions every day that if those decisions were modeled, would score in the 20s, probably, maybe lower, maybe a little bit higher, but not much higher. And yet they feel pretty good about making those decisions where they see data science really adding a lot of value is saying, I want you to get me up in the thirties and the forties. And I'm even willing to do that very incrementally. Like if you have to make a business decision every day for 365 days, and your goal is to make it one half of 1% better every day than the day before that. Based on the law of compounding, when you you know get to the end of the year, you'll have something really close to like 2,000% total annualized improvement, which by any 
definition is extraordinary. So that's the way they're looking at it. And so going through all of these mental gyrations to try to achieve essentially a deterministic view when they, they really business people totally get that this is a probabilistic multivariable situation every single time. They, they just don't have any patience with data science on that. Right. And so proof, when we built proof, it's not that we sacrificed any accuracy. I mean, we've had lots of data scientists test the accuracy of proof against other data science tools like Stata. And we're right in there, right? I mean, out to like four or five decimal places, we are right with Stata and every, all, you know, SPSS and all the rest of them, right? But that's not really the point. The point here is the speed with which we can recompute gives us a latency advantage that these other tools don't have. Which makes for better decision-making. Yeah, make far more dynamic response. I mean, this is sort you could say that legacy data science is waterfall, right? And what we've done is agile, right? That's a, I think, a reasonable contrast to make here. You know, one of the biggest challenges, and this kind of gets to what you were talking about a second ago, is when you're doing it the old fashioned way, you get a high degree of accuracy, but you also, are dealing with mega models that are very time consuming to recompute. So the the norm in data science with a big model is that we're going to recompute it twice a year. Right. So that means right after it's recomputed, okay, it's probably really solid for you. But in the ensuing six months, it's aging out. And you don't have any idea actually which direction reality has gone in relative to that original forecast. And so then six months later, it gets recomputed again, and you realize, oh, crap, I'm way out, way out. So the analogy here would be you're sailing across the ocean, right? You're aiming at an island. You shoot the sun, right? Or you use your GPS or your sat-nav to fix your position. And then you don't do it again for the rest of the trip. I mean, the currents, the wind, everything else. What do you think the odds are, okay, that you're going to hit that island? And compass heading is not the point because you can be still on the right compass heading, but you have drifted. Been, the currents could have pushed you way over, right? So you're not going to hit that. And you have no idea how to adjust your course because you're relying on a really old positioning, right? So that's the essence of it right there. Makes sense. So talk to me about the types of companies that you work with or your ideal customer profile. What kind of businesses can get the most value out of a tool like Proof Analytics? Who are you working with right now? I think it's actually at two ends of the maturity curve, right? So the most straightforward customers that we have are already doing all this and they're very experienced with this kind of analytic. They bought proof because they saw a better, faster, cheaper, more scalable solution, you know, way to do it, right? Than they currently had. And it's a licensed deal. You know, you onboard them, you get them familiar with 
the software and they're off to the races, right? And you check in with them here and there and all that kind of stuff, but it's a fairly straightforward proposition. And are we talking like Fortune 100 CPG companies? Are we talking about SaaS, enterprise SaaS type businesses? What kind of customers? It's actually totally horizontal in that sense, right? I would say that in general, the more regulated an industry is, the more sophisticated or the more mature they will be around data and analytics. Okay. We're talking about pharma and healthcare and automotive and aerospace and financial services would be another one. And those typically, you know, are fall into that first ICP. And then you've got companies that have very little knowledge of data and analytics, but are really waking up to the fact that they really need to do something pretty concrete. And so at least for some period of time, they will say, okay, I want to do proof. And I'm speaking particularly of the optimization product here. I want to do proof as, as a service, right? As a managed service, right? So we're going to supply the questions that we need modeled. We're going to supply the data that needs to be used to arm those models. And you proof are going to do everything else for us. You know, one of the things that we tried though to do is to say, okay, fine, we'll do that. Right. But over the course of the next six to 12 months or whatever the contract is, we're going to also bring you along. We're going to teach you. We're going to do knowledge transfer to you. Right. So that you can fish for yourself. Right. I mean, that's a better, faster, cheaper, more, far more scalable way of doing it than outsourcing it. But I would say that actually, you know, culture, your attitude towards how you make decisions, do you make decisions based on your belief and your experience, you know, in totality and in isolation from everything else? Or are you really interested in facts and the actual relationships, cause and effect relationships out there in the world that bear on your business? So in the first meeting that we have with prospective customers, the questions we ask are all cultural type questions, you know, and we can frame it lots of different ways, but like a classic one is, Hey, politics aside, how do you feel about the science underlying climate change study? Because, you know, let's say that you don't believe it, right? If you are not believing it based on your understanding of the data and the analytics, that's one thing. If you don't believe it because of your political affiliation, that's totally different, right? So we would say that the first type person or organization would be a great fit for any analytics company, not just proof. And someone that makes that decision based on the little letter after their name, right? Their political persuasion is probably not. Because if the analytics tell them something other than what they believe, they're probably not going to listen to it. Yeah. Reminds me of the saying or joke, politicians use data as a drunk uses a light post, more for support than illumination. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. I totally agree with that. Yeah. Don't, don't be that politician. No, don't be that politician. Yeah. We see that all the time. People using data to support their viewpoint as opposed to using data to, to find insights. And actually, this is also super important. So data, data in isolation, data visualized in a beautiful dashboard, okay, can be made to say 
anything, support anything. It's just the reality of it, right? But when you start putting it into analytical tools and you start exploring cause and effect analysis, you can't make that say anything, right? That's where kind of the rubber hits the road, right? And, you know, the alliteration aside for a second, there's a huge difference between data-driven, which honestly is like saying, hey, I make all my decisions based on the past, and being analytics-led, which is, hey, I'm, I make my decision based on how things are actually operating now in a cause and effect relationship, and based on what that tells me about the highly probable future that I'm looking at, right? That's the big difference. And I like that. Analytics-led versus data-driven. Yeah. Last thing in the world I want to do is drive my car looking in the rearview mirror, right? And that's what being data-driven is, right? Yeah. I want to shift gears for a bit. Usually I talk to startup founders and obviously you founded Proof Analytics, but your background is actually in the largest of enterprises. You've been CMO and CCO, Chief Commercial Officer at organizations like Honeywell, BMC, HP Enterprise, et cetera. A, what made you take that plunge from, you know, working at some of the biggest companies out there to starting something from scratch? And then B, what are some of the downsides of hiring people that are coming from enterprise? One of the common ones that you look for, you know, oftentimes, you know, enterprise folks are what's called empire builders as opposed to doers, right? They want to just hire big teams and not necessarily execute on anything themselves. Aside from that, anything else that you've noticed in your own development as you've shifted roles, but also as you're thinking about hiring executives that come from some of these large companies? I'm going to start here at the end of that question and move to the beginning of it. Sure. I think that actually one of the biggest challenges, again, that, you know, this is all about people in the end, process and technology are just aids to human performance and human reality, right? So the biggest challenge with hiring people out of large corporations is that they have gotten used to a level of support that is so pervasive that they don't even realize a lot of times how supported they have been. The easy example, the throwaway example of this would be, you know, leaders that had an EA, right? That did all their travel and their expense reports and their scheduling and, you know, all this kind of stuff, right? And all of a sudden they don't have that anymore, right? And I went through that, by the way, so I can personally attest to the fact that that's real. But that's a small change, you know? What I'm really talking about is when you are part of a very large team, it's not that you're not important and that your actions are not important. They're very important, particularly as a leader, but they're not even close to being the majority, the reasons for why things happen. I mean, like, yeah, you come up with a great idea as CMO and, you know, and you, you promulgate it and you get the credit for it to some degree, right? But who actually made it happen? Who actually implemented it? You? Not a chance, right? It's the 800 or so marketers in your large company marketing organization that made that happen. That is, they are supporting your idea. They're doing what you came up with, right? That does not exist in a startup. So yeah, you have to be far more hands-on. 
you can't just delegate and delegate and delegate, right? I mean, if you look at most C-suite folks, they spend their days in meetings. And most of those meetings are not really about major decisions. They're more about maintaining alignment. But that alignment is even one of the reasons why I have to keep on doing it over and over again is that it's very fluid because it's very human. Its basis is human. And, you know, people are inconsistent, let's say, right? And so today we hire very carefully. And unfortunately, you know, we've made bad decisions, burned ourselves. I take personal responsibility for it. Right. But we've learned a lot. I've learned a lot. And so, you know, because the person you hire as the CMO or a CCO of a large corporation is totally different in almost every way from the kind of person that you would hire as a startup CEO. Sure. I mean, like one of the things that I I'm kind of staggered at is that I was able to make the transition. Now, this is not my first entrepreneurial foray. So that was probably part of it. Right. But you know, you're like the frog in the pot. You get really, really used to a certain reality. Even in my case, I was very, you know, what some people call intrapreneurial inside of these corporations. So I never really, you know, like became passive, but it doesn't really matter because relative to what's necessary on the outside in the startup, you know, I got used to a lot of support and I had to unlearn all that. So we all tend to really vet for that, right? We want evidence that you have personally done things because that's the stone cold reality of the startup. Now, why I did it, I think you learn a lot as an entrepreneur every time. It doesn't matter how many times you've done it before. The next time is going to be different and you're going to learn different lessons, right? So in my particular case, I had gone as far as I probably could go as an analytics-led senior leader, because the thing that was really starting to put a ceiling on what we could do was this whole issue of operational latency. At Honeywell, we got through it by spending many millions of dollars to hire a lot, to overhire a lot of data analysts and data scientists to and using brute force, get the latency down to where the outputs were relevant, operationally relevant, right, to the business. But it was crazy. I mean, we're talking about like eight, nine, ten million million a year on analytics. There's not a lot of companies that A, can afford to do that and B, will afford to do that, right? Also, coming out of the software industry, you didn't have to be a rocket scientist at that point to say, hey, this this could really benefit from some automation. And, and yet, you know, none of these companies that I worked for were going to authorize a software development effort internally, right? In order to do this, that's just not where their head was, right? So if it was going to ever happen, I had to leave and other people had to leave their roles and we all had to come together and we had to make it happen outside of where we'd been. And that's exactly what we did right now. I will tell you that I th I've come to the conclusion that there, the entrepreneurial journey is about suffering. It just is. And not just for me as CEO, for every single person on a startup team, there is suffering. 
So you have to kind of reframe your mind and it develops a mental toughness in you that only suffering in its many different permutations will build in a person. Your choice is how do I respond to the suffering, right? And that's going to really determine how much goodness you get out of it. But yeah, I'm glad I did it, but I'm going to be really honest right now. There have been a lot of times, not just a few times, where in the middle of the crucible, I have said to myself, why in the effing hell did I ever do this? And, you know, pre-COVID, I was part of, I don't know, three or four pretty well-known startup founder, CEO type support groups. There's a reason why there are support groups for startup founders, right? It is brutal. And I think that also the thing that really makes it even more brutal in the case of SaaS is that a lot of people feel like that regardless of what the truth is, they always have to be killing it in public. And the reality is that's statistically untrue. And so you're kind of living this double life that really adds an enormous amount of stress and strain. And I did some of that myself, but I realized that it was totally unsustainable and it wasn't real. And I was never going to do it with investors because I'm not going to take anybody's money on a false basis, right? Sure. Michael Siebel has a line that being a founder, when things are going poorly, it feels like you're getting punched in the face every day. And when things are going well, it feels like you're getting punched in the face every day. That's the startup founder life. So really great perspective. I have one more question for you before we get to our exciting lightning round. Speaking of CMOs, that is known to be the shortest tenured position in the C-suite. You mentioned, I think, a few of the causes of that as it relates to data lag and lack of visibility into the progress and or outcomes driven by marketing's efforts. What else do you think is contributing to that trend that we're seeing that CMOs tend to cycle in and out of companies fairly quickly? So CMOs, marketing in general, particularly in B2B, in fact, I would say this problem is far more acute in B2B than it is in B2C. B2B marketing has a massive brand problem, and I'm going to define brand, and I think it is very accurate, and it is not about like how your logo looks and all this kind of stuff, right? You certainly make a contribution to this equation, but your brand is actually owned by the marketplace. It's defined by the marketplace, right? Brand is a bucket for three psychographics. These are really important things that almost every person references when they go to make a decision, particularly a buy decision or a buy-in decision. And as the cost and the risk of that decision goes up, these three things, particularly two of them, become even more important. So what are these three things? They are awareness of you, confidence in you, and trust in you. The last two are super important in the back half of the customer decision journey, right? Because that part of the journey is all about due diligence. It's all about risk mitigation. And the risk that's being mitigated is you, the vendor, okay? They want to make sure that if they sign a paper with you, that they've made a really good choice. 
confidence and trust, you can certainly, you build it by the actions that you take and the way that you behave in the marketplace. But at the end of the day, right, you can be a great person. And if everybody thinks you're not, then from a brand perspective, you've got a problem. You know, when we look at it analytically speaking, the relationships between trust and decision velocity off the charts, company to company to company, just crazy alignment between those two things. So the more trust your customers have, typically the faster they will make a decision to hop in the bucket with you, right? Confidence, same thing, right? That has a similar impact on deal velocity. It also has a major impact on the size of the deal. If they start to really become convinced that what you're proposing could really be a major value add to them, they will oftentimes buy more of whatever it is you're selling than they had originally planned on. That's deal expansion, right? That's a function of confidence for sure. To briefly define confidence and trust, because a lot of people use these interchangeably, I'll just do it this way. We've all worked with people that we knew were completely competent in their job, that they were going to absolutely attain all their goals and that they were going to kill it, right? In terms of their performance. But we did not trust them as far as we could throw them. Likewise, we probably have also known some people that we said, wow, you know, Jane or Jack is a really awesome person. I totally trust them. But my God, they seem totally incompetent in the role in which they've been placed. That's the difference between confidence and trust. So how does this all come back to CMOs? So I'm writing a book right now actually on this, and I'm interviewing a lot of Fortune 1000 CEOs and CFOs about how they see marketing now and in the future. And this kind of this whole issue comes up. And this one CEO two weeks ago talked earlier in the interview about awareness, confidence, and trust. And then he came back to it and he said, Hey, I am going to use that as a way to explain how I feel about marketing and sales, because actually both of these are highly problematic and the churn on CROs is almost as bad as CMOs. It just doesn't get the publicity that CMO gets. That's a more recent kind of title. Right. And so he'll say, look, you know, my CRO, my head of sales, I have absolute confidence that he will meet his number. He will reach his goal revenue-wise. I have epically low levels of trust in how he accomplishes it. So like, what does that mean? Well, that means these may be multi-year deals. He may have discounted it heavily up front. There may be obligations that the company, you know, almost like isn't fully aware that they have later in the contract. It completely changes the quality of the revenue and thus the quality of the earnings, right? And this is not a SaaS company that this guy's running. It's an extremely large, very complex company. He said, now I'm going to then contrast that with how I feel about my CMO. I totally trust her. I know that she's looking out for the company. I know that she would never do the wrong thing. I know that she would never do something that's going to make things really work for her in the short term and kill us long term. I know all that, but I also have no confidence. I don't have the basis for any confidence in the fact that marketing is generating significant value vis-a-vis the money that we spend on it. 
Yep. I mean, that's about as clear as it gets, right? And so the reason why there's so much churn for CMOs is that for reasons that are all too human, I think, and still inexplicable to me, both sides of this, the business side and the marketing side, have done nothing to resolve it. And now, given the crucible that we're all in, economically speaking, which is in some respects far worse than anything in recent memory, they are, businesses are saying, okay, we are so freaking done with the business as usual and B2B marketing. Basically, if you're a highly experienced B2B CMO today, based on all these interviews that I've done and based on the data as well, right, from like CMO Council, it's cutting against you. It's not cutting for you like it used to, right? So you need to be able to say, this is what I've really learned. These are the mistakes I made in the past. This is how I'm going to do it differently. That's going to be the subtext and maybe even the text of your next round of interviews for the next CMO role. So that's really where it is. And it really comes down to everybody saying, look, we need the single source of truth. We need to really understand. So the other part of this is that a lot of C-suites are saying this whole idea that marketing and sales are separate is crap, right? And they also put product and customer success in this, right? This is all part of the customer experience and it all needs to be one team. Their biggest problem is though, who's going to lead it? The marketing guys, which for in many ways are probably have most of the skills, have no sales skills at all. The sales guys have a lot of sales ability, but very little anything else, right? And again, not the first set of professions to go through this whole thing. I mean, enterprise IT went through it after Y2K. There's HR went through it about 10 years ago, right? You go from I-shaped leaders, okay, which is function, 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 to T-shaped leaders, okay, which is a business person who happens to specialize in a particular area. Functional expertise, but broad coverage across the, the top. Yeah, and who really understands contextually what the role of that function or those functions are in the business and sees it from the business perspective, not from the functional perspective. Sure. That's really what the deal is, right? And I think that what we will see over the next three years is unfortunately an enormous amount of attrition, particularly in B2B marketing leadership, that is largely unnecessary attrition and in many respects, undesirable attrition, but where they are unwilling to change or unable to change. And another example of this is that more and more of the analytics for marketing and sales are being taken over by finance. And the main reason for that is finance is saying, hey, look, neither one of these organizations have analytics as a core skill set to who they are. And so the whole idea that they're going to somehow fix these problems themselves is a fantasy, right? And so we're going to do it for them. So this is also one area where we're seeing right now our economic buyer for analytics shifting. Interesting. There's so many follow-up questions I have there, but we're out of time here. So we're going to have to 
get you back for, for that conversation. When does the book come out and what's the title? The working title right now is The Modern CMO, but it's not going to be that. I mean, that's pretty much uninspiring as a title. And I'm sure the publisher will also have something to say about that. But, it, you know, right now it's targeted for like February of 2024. Looking forward to that. So we close out with a lightning round. I'm going to ask you a few questions, try to answer. First thing comes to your mind in under 60 seconds. Yeah. All right. What book, podcast, and or newsletter do you find yourself recommending most often? Well, okay. So anything that is written in any channel by a guy named Bill Schmarzo. So Bill Schmarzo is a very senior data science guy at Dell. He is widely recognized in the data science industry globally as a leading expert, although he would probably hate me for saying that. You know, he's a very humble guy. He is all about helping non-data scientists become reasonably aware and capable in that world. Even if they're not actually doing the modeling, they're intelligent consumers and users of the output. His last name is spelled S-C-H-M-A-R-Z-O. Fantastic. I had not heard of him, so always happy when I get a new recommendation. You had a podcast yourself for about a year, year and a half. What was the most surprising thing that you learned doing that as a host? You never know. I don't care how much research you do in advance of the podcast, you never know exactly how it's going to go, particularly when there's a really massive epiphany that is brought into the conversation by the guest. There's just no freaking way to predict that. One of the things I love about podcasting, there's a spontaneity to it that is kind of analogous to acting on the stage versus acting in a movie, right? And so I'm always kind of like entranced. And I love this, by the way, when I was a Newsweek reporter, same deal, right? I love interviewing people because they, a lot of times, will say something incredibly important or incredibly illuminating, but they are so close to it. They take it so for granted that they don't even realize what they've just said a lot of times, right? And I love that. I mean, that is, that's fantastic. And so one of the ways that I learn is I interview people, whether it's for a book or a podcast or whatever, right? I'm just kind of always doing that. I had no idea that you previously were a journalist. Last one, what principle or core value do you try to live your life by? Man, I have a pretty strong faith. And so I'm always trying to be more like the person I'm following than I was yesterday knowing that I will never get there completely. So this is not about my sanctification. It's like basically doing it better, hopefully, every day, right? I'm getting better and better every day. That's, that's my affirmation for the week. One of the things that I have, you know, particularly as I've gotten older, that I've learned to ask for in the context of my faith is more and more wisdom, which is actually a hell of a statement, right? For somebody that's pretty significantly addicted to knowledge. I've become far more interested actually in the last several years in the integration of knowledge. I mean, I'm not even remotely representing myself as a polymath, right? But I read a lot about known polymaths. The chief among them would have to be Leonardo da Vinci, right? And fortunately for us, 
he really describes how that worked for him. It was a, what we would call methodology that he had, right, on how to do it. And so I have, I really started to implement that, right, in my own life. Again, this is sort of like analytics, right? I'm not really interested in the individual data points anymore. That would be the knowledge pieces. I'm interested in how they all come together to explain something really, really significant, right? That transcends knowledge. It's about wisdom, right? It's about, wow, you know, how do I make a decision between these choices based on what it might mean for me in the future? That's wisdom. Fantastic. Well, Mark, I really enjoyed this. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and your wisdom with us. To close us out, why don't you share how can people find you if they want to continue the conversation, any links or resources that you'd like to call out and any final thoughts? Yeah, the Proof's website, if, you're, if you'd like to learn more about Proof, and it's a very structured and simplified site, right? It's meant to help you determine whether you want to have a conversation with us or not. So it's proofanalytics.ai. The best way to reach me directly is through LinkedIn. You can either PM me there or, you know, in the context of one of my posts, just say, hey, I'd really like to talk to you and I will always respond. Fantastic. And I'll be on the lookout for the book announcement as it comes available. I'm already following you on LinkedIn, so I'm sure I'll see that when it happens. I learned a ton, Mark. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you for your time and wishing you all the best. Thanks so much, man. Thank you. That's a wrap. Thanks so much for listening and joining me on this learning adventure. My goal with this podcast is to share practical tips with founders and growth practitioners to help you on your startup journey. If you like this episode, please drop a review in Apple Podcasts. It helps others like you find us. And I always love to hear from you, so feel free to reach out at hello at pmfpod.com or on LinkedIn or Twitter. Finally, don't forget to check out growth.co, that's growth without the O.co, if you're considering a fractional CMO for your startup. Until next time, wishing you rocket ship success in your startup journey.